American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham. This is Due South on WUNC. I'm Jeff Tiberi. And I'm Leonida Inge. Republican presidential hopeful Nikki Haley's political story is also a Southern story. She's been one of only a handful full of female governors in the South, and her career has been shaped in part in response to the 2015 massacre in Charleston, where a white supremacist murdered nine black people in the historic Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church. At the time, Haley was South Carolina's governor, and there were calls to take down the Confederate flag at the statehouse. Today, we are here in a moment of unity in our state without ill will to say it's time to move the flag from the Capitol grounds. Now Haley is up on stage defending her conservative credentials in the GOP presidential primary debates. We passed one of the toughest illegal immigration laws in the country. We passed pro-life bills. We moved an unemployment from 11 percent to 3 percent. We took on the unions and we took on Obama when it came to the unions, the Syrian refugees and everything in between. Nikki Haley is a former U.N. ambassador under the Trump administration, as well as a two-term South Carolina governor, though she didn't finish that second term so she could take the ambassadorship. She worked her way from the state legislature to the top reaches of the GOP. We're talking today about her rise in recent polls and what her political past could mean for her political future. Haley is having a moment. Just how much of one and what it all means, that's still unclear. With us today on Due South is Caitlin Bird, senior politics reporter at the Charleston Post and Courier in South Carolina. Caitlin, welcome to Due South. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, just real quick off the top, curious, how long have you been covering Nikki Haley? I have been covering Nikki Haley and have been in South Carolina since 2016. But from the moment I got here, it was very important to get up to speed on what she had been doing in the state. You know, earlier this year, you and Two colleagues at the Post and Courier, you wrote a profile about Haley. The title captures a lot. Nikki Haley, from outsider to insider, on path from Bamberg to maybe the White House. That's pretty big. You know, tell us um, about, you know, what stands out there in your mind, you know, from your reporting, especially on Nikki Haley and her formative years. Yeah, so we really thought it was important to start with those early years in Bamberg, South Carolina. And she ended up actually talking about Bamberg, South Carolina in her campaign launch video. Um, She actually stands in her video at these railroad tracks that bisect the town. Um, And it was a place where Haley has written about extensively about being a brown girl in a black and white world, saying that her family wasn't black enough to be black, wasn't white enough to be white. Her father wore a turban, her mother wore a sari. So they stuck out a little bit in a place like Bamberg, South Carolina. So Nikki was one of four children. I found it really interesting that she actually placed out of one of her early grades. So she was probably the scrawny kid in the class. And that creates a really different dynamic of wanting to prove yourself, but still wanting to find some way to fit in, which is so human for all of us to want to feel like we belong. But she had a hard time finding that place of belonging, even in Bamberg. And she talks about incidents like when she and her sister entered this Little Miss Bamberg pageant. And at the time, that pageant was separated into Blacks and Whites. And they said, well, we don't have a place for you. And so Nikki Haley was left standing on that stage holding a beach ball. So you can imagine Mm -hmm. what a formative 
memory that must have been for for a young girl, much less one who now is running to be president of the United States. So her mother gave her a piece of advice that seems to resonate and help us have a better understanding of who she is as a person and as a politician. Her mother said to her, Nikki, your job is not to show how you're different. Your job is to show how you're similar. And so we see in her presidential run how she oscillates between those two seemingly conflicting identities of being someone who is, on the one hand, an outsider, someone who is other than what we're used to seeing on a Republican presidential stage, but at the same time, someone who is a consummate insider, who has built the resume to be standing on that stage, who has the skills in order to do the job. And so she navigates between these two worlds um, while standing on that stage uniquely as a candidate of one. I was thinking about that beauty pageant, you know, isn't that, you know, when you think of the South, you know, everybody wants to stick their daughter in in one of those beauty pageants. But I just, I wonder from that point on, does she think politics, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to run for class president now, you know? Right. And that's, what's so interesting is um, this is what's great about coming on to shows like y'all's because one, I'm a North Carolinian, so I'm excited to be here. And two, you know, we get to talk about the details that didn't make it into the story. Uh, There's a lot of stuff that gets left on the cutting room floor when you're doing this kind of work. And one of Haley's middle school social studies teachers actually had described her to us as someone who was smart, quiet, and popular, but not necessarily the vital force that she's grown up to be. So she wasn't that kid who was, you know, vying to be SGA president. She was someone who kind of kept her head down, got along well with others, but she wasn't necessarily some SGA poster-making gal <laughs> saying, vote for me, pick me, choose me. Caitlin Bird here on Do South. She's a reporter with the Charleston Post and Courier. Leonita mentioned this profile that you wrote or you helped to write earlier this year. And one of the things, as we're thinking about early childhood years of, of Nikki Haley that stuck out to me was the fact that she was raised Sikh. And I'm wondering Mm -hmm. if you can tell us a little bit more about that. I mean, in the South, where you spend or where you don't spend that that Sunday morning is uh, illustrative and important. And here is uh, you said not black, not white, somewhere in between. And she also, from a religious standpoint, was on something of an island as well. You're absolutely right. And and I'm sure you guys have heard this before on being in the South, you know, We've heard that, what is it, 11 o'clock on a Sunday is the most divided hour. It's the most segregated hour in the South. You know, we still see Methodist churches that are predominantly white and, you know, Methodist churches that are predominantly black, and you see that split. And so what did Haley's family do? Well, they worshiped predominantly in their home, um, but they also were constantly getting knocks on the door and conversations from people, according to Haley, of asking them to convert. So there was a pressure to conform from an early age But she talks about how she wished she'd learned the language Punjabi, for example, um, so that she could have grown closer to that Sikh faith. But she also talks about how more broadly her mother and her father sort of instilled this idea of there being a God, of how important faith is to you as a person, to your family, to your upbringing, to your values and your morals and how you navigate the world. And so when she meets her husband, Michael, at Clemson University, they end up dating for a while, they get married, and that's when she converts. But it's important to note that Haley still wanted to honor those traditions. So they actually had two ceremonies. They had a Sikh ceremony, and then they also 
had a more traditional quote unquote Christian service down at a Methodist church uh, here on the coast of South Carolina. So she did convert for love, but she also felt like she didn't necessarily shun her faith, if that makes sense. So even within her faith, she found a, a marriage of having it not be something that was a divisive choice, but it was something that she felt in her heart uh, still was important. And she actually decided to raise her children in the Christian faith as opposed to a Sikh. But in Haley's retelling, no, it's not like she turned her kids away from those traditions either. So they're a very blended family. And I think about when she was at her Charleston presidential kickoff launch, you know, she's standing on that stage and she's very unique in this field that she's standing up there with her husband, Michael, who is white with her children who are lighter brown skin like her and her daughter has actually married a black man. So this is a very blended, very distinctly American family um, where you see all different kinds of people represented within one family, which is really unique. I guess it is unique. If it's not surprising, you know, based on where they lived and where they grew up and, um, you know, they, they, they moved to the American South. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. it, it's, it's full of all those those voices and faces. But I guess I want to know, you know, at what point did she feel that, you know, she wanted to get into politics? Yeah, because originally she she got a degree in accounting, right? So it wasn't like she took that usual track that we're used to seeing, which is, I call it like the attorney pipeline. We see so many lawyers become legislators, become governors, become senators, become congressmen. But Nikki entered public life in 2004. And what happened was she was running for a seat in the South Carolina House of Representatives. The reason why she chose this particular seat in Lexington County was at the time, the legislature's longest serving lawmaker, Larry Kuhn, had said he was going to retire. So Haley announced that she was gonna run for the open seat. Well, it turns out that seat wasn't quite so open. (laughs) He ends up not retiring. And so she ends up challenging the longest serving incumbent in the state house. And that primary got pretty nasty. But even back then, I mean, retail politics came very naturally to Haley. I mean, she handed out Krispy Kreme donuts. Um, She went to like the school pickup and drop off lines and asked people for their vote and if they were in her district. And I'm told that she actually, during that race, wound up taping a fortune cookie to her computer screen at that time that said, winners do what losers don't want to. And now I see that exact same message on her t-shirts and bumper stickers that her presidential campaign is selling. So it's very full circle moment for her right now. Nikki Haley uh, would land a space in the state legislature in South Carolina and soon thereafter become governor of the Palmetto State before her 40th birthday. We're chatting about her ascent in politics and her quest these days to uh, capture the GOP nomination for president. This is Due South on WUNC. I'm Jeff Tiberi. And I'm Leonita Inge. And we're here with Caitlin Bird, senior politics reporter at the Post and Courier. Um, We're talking about Nikki Haley and her run for the Republican presidential nomination. You know, I want to go back to 2015, Caitlin. A lot happened at that point. And um, just that year in South Carolina, political history. Yeah, it was it was a consequential year, especially for Haley um, and especially for the state, I should say, because uh, 
just to put it in some context, you know, this comes after her historic election as governor in 2010, when she was elected the first woman and was the first minority woman as well, elected governor in South Carolina. Um, but 2015, to your point, is probably the year that many people outside of the state began hearing her name. That year, a multitude of events happened that would test any governor. First, in April, there was the police shooting of Walter Scott, who was gunned down by a white lawman in North Charleston. A month or two later comes the hate-fueled mass shooting of nine Black parishioners at Charleston's Mother Emanuel Amy Church. Soon after that, the removal of the Confederate battle flag from the State House grounds in July, and then even later that year, in December, we had historic flooding that killed 19 people. So we had a confluence of natural man-made disasters, horrific hate crime, and something that People forget that the shooting of Walter Scott was one of the first times that we saw the use of a bystander's cell phone video to disprove a police narrative. So you have this confluence of events that really test Nikki Haley and her ability to lead the state through tragedy. Um, it's actually during this time that she starts to be seen as something of a healer in chief. I was about she to say, she, to she got to be seen as a real person. And I guess when things mm-hmm. like that happen, no matter where you are, what office you're running from, people kind of forget some of your, um, you know, your platforms, you know, against Medicaid, you know, mm-hmm. against abortion. You know, you forget her social background. And then in a way, to me, it seems like she almost got a pass. You know, she got to be a real person, a compassionate person. And um, that's what I think about 2015. Yeah, I mean, and and I don't want to make any assumptions here, but for me, at least, I was in North Carolina when when the shootings happened, but I've since met family members of the victims of the Emanuel, we call it the Mother Emanuel shooting here. And I think of that clip of Haley the very next morning standing outside of the church, and you can see the tears in her eyes, and it doesn't seem like some sort of political stunt. It's real pain. And even now, I mean, I get a little emotional just talking about it because as I was watching these events unfold as someone who was born and raised in the South, I remembered thinking in those horrible moments and I got the push alerts about this shooting in a black church and thinking, how are we here? How is it that we're here in 2015? Um, I can't believe this is even happening. And that, that sense of raw pain is still here in Charleston. So let's, I, I want to be very clear that Nikki Haley did not solve racism but she did do something in South Carolina that no other governor has done. And they had tried to, and that was that removal of that Confederate battle flag, which then waved outside of the state house grounds. It had been moved from atop the dome and the compromise was to move it in front of the legislative building where the people's work is done. But after this shooting pictures emerged of the white supremacists brandishing this flag. And by the way, people leave this part out, but there were also pictures that show him burning the American flag. So it wasn't just the symbolism of him waving around this symbol, which for many is either a visual representation of hate or heritage, you know, but he also showed a a blatant disregard for America as well. So when these pictures come out, it reignites this long simmering debate in South Carolina about whether that flag, whether that banner deserves to wave in Columbia anymore. Um, And people had lost political races by saying that they would bring it down. I just want to make that very clear. And even Nikki Haley had said 
before this all happened, that the flag was a non-issue because CEOs weren't calling and asking her about it. So the shooting changes everything. And one of the victims in that shooting was a state senator, and he was the pastor of this church, um, Clementa Pinckney. And so very quickly after, uh, Nikki Haley calls meetings with uh, leadership from Democrats in the state, Republicans um, talking at the state legislative level because you need a two-thirds majority vote to make this happen. And then she also requested meetings with the congressional delegation. And that includes individuals like Jim Clyburn, who fought for civil rights in South Carolina and is the state's only Democrat uh, at the federal level right now. Um, but she, in her retelling, and this was also confirmed to me from other lawmakers here, she brought these groups together. She didn't tell them what exactly she was calling them in for. And she met with them all individually and said this is that she wanted to take the flag down. She was going to announce it at three o'clock the next day that the flag was coming down. And if you'll stand with me, I'll be forever grateful. If you don't, I won't tell anyone that you were ever in this room. And so she rolled the dice, not knowing who would be standing with her or if she would be standing alone. But they did stand with her. People like Tim Scott, people like Lindsey Graham, people like Jim Clyburn and also Republicans and Democrats, white and black in the state legislature stood with her. And when all was said and done, the flag did come down. Uh, in the House, it was a vote of 94 to 20. So well, a third, well above that two thirds majority required. And in the state Senate, it was 37 to three. So it was a really remarkable moment. Thousands of people poured into Columbia to see that flag come down. Some people are still upset that the flag came down, but whether she likes it or not, that was a huge moment that would really start a larger national conversation about Confederate monuments and flags and whether they're appropriate in public spaces. So I want to roll with some of what you just said, Caitlin Bird, reporter of the Post and Courier in Charleston here on Due South, chatting about Nikki Haley's political career and um, rise to, to national prominence. You note that this is a remarkable moment. And objectively, that is true. It's also objectively true that this flag was up decades, if not a century, too long. Uh, it's also objectively true that politicians, you know, blow with the whims, at, at winds at mm -hmm. times, and, and they're they're opportunists, and that's what sets aside, you know, many if not all elite elected leaders and, and politicians is understanding uh, the winds, regardless of what they necessarily believe. So I offer that uh, perhaps as a cynic and a former political reporter, but I do wonder what transpired after this powerful symbol came down in terms of her legislative record, in terms of her other stances, whether they're social, whether it's civil rights oriented, whether it's batting down white supremacy within a couple years of that flag coming down, she is the ambassador for the 45th president, Donald Trump to the UN. So there's like an inst to me, there's a really interesting juxtaposition here. It's kind of going both ways. Is it not? I think it's to your point earlier, it's, it's a politician who has a very finely tuned antennae about how the winds are blowing. And I think it's important to also throw in and remember that Donald Trump was not Nikki Haley's first pick for president back in 2016. She was with Marco Rubio first and then she later endorsed Ted Cruz. <laughs> and so, um, so she did not get on the Trump bandwagon early on, but it is interesting that she became his ambassador to the UN. But also we should note that Henry McMaster, who was then a Lieutenant governor, 
was elevated to that position of governor by Haley's own appointment. So in many ways, Trump even today talks about how he was rewarding McMaster more so than rewarding Haley. But the truth is, is that Haley got exactly what she wanted. Mm -hmm. She got foreign policy experience on her resume (laughs) and she already had executive experience from her time in the governor's office. And after leading the state through 2015, she was asked to give the state of the union address to then president Barack Obama the next year. So her star really took off. Um, and, and she did make it to the United Nations where, where she had some pretty memorable clashes. Administration. I, I think especially of the time when she and Larry Kudlow got into a little bit of a, a public tit for tat um, when she had said Russian sanctions were imminent and Kudlow said, no, that was not true. And uh, in a more pointed way said, you know, she must have been mistaken. And Haley fired back publicly with all due respect. I don't get confused. And then Kudlow ends up uh, uh, apologizing to Haley, which I think that's something that was pretty remarkable because at the time we thought, oh, Haley must have really stepped in it. (laughs) She's about to, you know, show that she's been a governor, but not an ambassador for a long time. Um, And instead she gets the apology and she also got the most gracious exit of any Trump administration official, arguably where everybody else got fired on Twitter (laughs) unceremoniously. She got an oval office, red carpet, sit next to each other, say nice things about one another, send off. To me, it speaks to just this level of a tactician that she, she must be. And I've heard that from my sourcing through the years, which is, you know, she knows how to make friends, if you will, but she also knows how to get kind of exactly what she wants at the same time. So I just found it so, so interesting how she navigates those Trump years. And and she jumped ship, you know, before things really, really went south. But Caitlin, I'd like to know more about Haley. You know, some people call her this political outsider. I think you called her this underestimated political insider, but really her history with um, the former president, Donald Trump. I mean, um, you know, when you look at some of the numbers, really, does she have a chance of being the GOP nominee for president? Uh, I'm not sure. I wouldn't say that just yet. But tell me a little bit more about that relationship, or even if there is sure. a relationship. <laughs> to the best of our knowledge, there there is a relationship. Uh, allegedly, she even reached out to him after January 6th. So, um, but, but when she was his ambassador, you know, she told him that she wanted direct access to him. She wanted to be able to ring him up whenever she wanted to. And we have to remember that even within the Trump administration, right, when we're thinking about that outsider-insider dynamic here, she was uh, appointed, but she wasn't in Washington. She was in New York, which may have actually shielded her a little bit um, from some of the drama of the Trump years. But when she was at the UN, I mean, she did break with the former president on a number of foreign policy stances, like declaring that Russia was guilty of war crimes in Syria. But then she also found places where they could agree too, right? So she stood with Trump when he announced that the US would be leaving the Paris Climate Accord. Um, She also, during her time at the United Nations, they withdrew from the Human Rights Council um, and then a couple weeks after Trump recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and announced plans to move the U.S. embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, 
you know, this is something that member countries at the United Nations actually turned against America pretty by and large. Um, and that left Nikki Haley as a representative, uh, as the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. You know, she was standing all on her own. Um, and there was actually this famous vote to condemn the United States for its actions um, of, with Jerusalem. And Haley punched back at it. And it was really Haley against the world standing, you know, being the only one who who voted against this resolution. So, it, but in terms of her relationship with Trump, boy, has it oscillated. <laughs> but at the same time, I think it's important to note as we look at this particular moment, that Trump is focusing most of his firepower on DeSantis. And I will say, as a political reporter, that the nickname Bird Brain is kind of weak <laughs> compared to some of the past nicknames we've heard from Trump. Um, I thought he might have given her something a little bit spicier, but Bird Brain is what they've settled on for now until she appears to be more of a threat. <laughs> right, right. You, you, you mentioned oscillate. I want to go from birds to uh, amphibians. Again, I'm going to show some cynical cards here. Uh, <laughs> politicians are amphibious. They just, they, they are by nature. This is part of the, the gig, if you will. Caitlin, talk to us a little bit about other times where Governor Ambassador Haley Talk to us about some of the other notable, I'll call them flip-flops, during her political career. Sure. One of the first things that really comes to mind is the way that she really tweaks her language when she talks about the insurrection on January 6th, right? So initially, she really came out strong in condemning that attack, even calling what had happened a national disaster. Um, And at the time, it really seemed like she was breaking from her former boss, right? It seemed like by condemning him in this very public way in a speech that was before the RNC. Um, But she would soften that language over time. And as we write, I mean, her political instincts recalibrated where she'd once said that his words and actions would be judged sharply by history. She started making distinctions about that. And that to me is very telling that something internally changed. Uh, She realized it was no longer politically advantageous to stick to that harsh language, but instead she needed to soften. And at that time she wasn't running for president, but she would. Yeah, but she, yeah, and but she is now. So I wonder, Caitlin, you know, do you think Nikki Haley is really just like still worried about fitting in? You know, I'm always excited when a woman is running for office, especially a woman of color, and then she's running for the biggest, baddest office we have. But I I, I wonder... um, um, do you see that confidence in her now, like, you know, when she was a governor? And, you know, does she have a chance at all? Yeah, that's a million-dollar question. I do think that that confidence that I saw in her as governor is still there, if not a little bit stronger, to be honest with you. Her performance on the debate stage was something we all thought that she would excel at. That's where she's comfortable. That's where she knows how to really take a punch and then punch right back. And she has largely built her rise, if you could call it that, she's built her rise through those moments on the debate stage. And she's only recently started putting down some serious money um, and talking about television ads in places like Iowa and New Hampshire. So I'm curious to see how that investment translates into that, into those numbers and whether it can start to close the gap. But again, you know, we can't miss the forest for the trees here. The gap, the front runner in the race 
he's not just up by 10, he's up by like 40 or 50 points in some places. It seems just such an unfathomable gap to try to close, even with what Haley's campaign is describing as like a slow, steady strategy. But it's December. How much slower can it go? If you really want to pull something out, you've got to make some magic happen fast. And it looks like if she wants to be successful here, it's it's kind of a weird strategy to think about. But going for like a pretty strong second place finish in Iowa, a pretty strong second place finish or better in New Hampshire. And then she continues to predict that it'll come to a head in her home state of South Carolina. But this is still a GOP dominated by Trump. And I don't know if she's going to get the results that she wants in South Carolina in a place where Trump can show up to a football game and people will cheer for him. He commands a stage like no one else in this field, even when he's not on a debate stage. It's really remarkable and let's not forget, Haley's someone who plays the long game. So if 2024 isn't her year, I wouldn't be surprised if she comes back in 28. Caitlin Bird from the Charleston Post and Courier is with us here on Due South. I want to respond just really quickly to a couple of things you said. Uh, 2028, yes, it's five years away, but Nikki Haley is only 51 years old. This is very young in presidential politics. The South Carolina primary, we should remind listeners, is uh, – It served as the turning point in the 2020 election. Joe Biden did not fare particularly well in Iowa or New Hampshire, came uh, maybe not out of nowhere, but came with really a a, a rousing um, push in South Carolina. Caitlin, you use the words unfathomable, remarkable, and these are appropriate words, uh, if not redundant at times, as we talk about contemporary American politics. To me, it's both remarkable and unfathomable that the leader of the Republican field by 40 points just so happens to have 91 criminal uh, indictment counts against him. But that is the reality of where we are. So fill in the blank for me. Blank would have to happen for Nikki Haley to be the nominee 10 months from now. What is blank? The blank would be overwhelming polls showing that Haley alone can defeat Biden by large margins in November. That is what has to happen. Right now, the polls show that Trump can still beat Biden in November, even if Haley is beating him more. A lot of Trump supporters just need to hear that he'll win for them to continue to support him. So long-winded answer of saying Trump would have to transform his image into being from the biggest winner that he likes to talk about himself, Trump would have to stop being seen as a winner. He would have to become a loser for Haley to prevail as the victor. That is the long and short of it. There has to be a massive image change of Trump in the eyes of Republican primary voters who adore him. And that's very challenging. And the clock is ticking. Caitlin Byrd is senior politics reporter at The Post and Courier. She has covered Nikki Haley since 2016. Caitlin, thanks for joining us on Do South. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Jeff Tabiri. And I'm Leonida Inge. Do South continues in a moment. <laughs> 